two. A four-syllable surname makes you? A, patient. B, always on the run. C, hungry. D, a man without regret. Three, the best way to reach a communophobe is to? A, knock on the door until the sound of your knocking is more disruptive than the thought of speaking with you. B, write and run on sentences in which each clause is so long and dependent anyone can see the time you took to write them. C, leave a message after the beat. D, join the club. Communophobes only trust each other. Four, when your computer acts up, you should treat it like A, a gossipy friend. B, a lover with a bad cold. C, an altar to a trickster god. D, a vengeful servant whose buttons you push every day. Number five, over the telephone, you should never give A, your credit card number. B, your social security number. C, the impression that you are paranoid. And D, the words to that song your mother used to sing to put you to sleep when you were a kid. Six, a blank is what you call a person with one foot in the grave and one foot in Silicon Alley. Number seven, say there was a guy named Glenn. Say this man was of modest means. Say he was very tall and very fat. Say he crossed the street one day and was almost run over by a car. Say he was spared only because he spotted, spotted a $100 bill on the ground and hesitated to pick it up. Say this man had a roommate and his roommate had a penchant for giving out nicknames. What would this roommate name his friend? A, Lucky. B, Tiny. C, Richie Rich. D, Bill. Eight. The secret ingredient to the perfect sauce is A, garlic. B, ginger. C, never where you left it. Or D, the latest scheme from a brilliant ad man. Number nine. A jack of all trades is a master of A, none. B, the universe. C, the art of deception. D, ceremonies. 10. At a Southern track meet, you can tell who will win the men's 100-yard dash by A, the circumference of his hamstrings and forearms. B, how much time he spends in the blocks. C, the direction of the wind. D, the number of ringlets in his hair. 11. Say there was a woman who owned a tiara. Say this tiara was given to her by someone she barely knew. Say she only wore it once when she was a beauty pageant contestant before she ever read The Second Sex. Say this woman kept her tiara in her underwear drawer and was considering giving it to her best boyfriend who had always wanted a tiara. Anyone with a lick of sense would call this woman A. A feminist B. A metrosexual C. A nasty girl D. Regifter Number 12. The sound of a lover's voice is to the hiss of an old radiator as your favorite sweater is to... Okay, and, and uh, please put your name on those. 
And and when you're done, um, could you pass it to your neighbor uh, to the right, your nearest neighbor? And you should grade your neighbors. Grade your neighbors and, and write us a little note about your grading scheme. And, and, and we'll, we'll take these up at the end. And as I said, we'll post the grades to our website. You, you, you can grade it's it with a letter grade However, or points. Number, points, some other system. Smiley face, frowny face. <laughs> okay, All so right. uh, while you're doing that, um, we come from making literature um, and music. Um, when we started working together a little over 10 years ago, I was working mostly as a poet and Keith was working as a musician. And during that time, he also uh, worked as a sound designer for theater. And, and so uh, part of what we're going to show you today, we're going we're gonna to show some of our old projects and sort of try to end up in the present as much as we can and uh, talk about what we're working on now. Um, many of our projects have uh, been made for the internet. Uh, so that's really a space in which we uh, started to collaborate. Um, when we started collaborating, we were living in Durham, North Carolina, and we're both uh, from the South, but we weren't from there. And so one of the things we found is that we had a, a number of challenges. One, we didn't have a lot of access to galleries or to doing readings or, um, or broadcasting our work. We also were far away from, from our friends and family and the people that we knew as audience members um, most traditionally. Uh, so we were looking for strategies um, to get our work out and to, to place it in context where it would make sense. Uh, we started to work online. All right, and, and so part of what we're focus, focusing on today are strategies uh, for narrow casting. And so we were interested in how artists had done these kinds of things in the past, right? Um, so we looked at a lot of uh, sort of artist TV projects, um, sort of radio art, uh, that have been made over the years in the United States and, and in Europe. Um, and at this point, uh, we're talking about around 1996 here, uh, there was just starting to be a sort of growing sort of internet art scene um, internationally. Um, so it had been happening in Europe for a couple of years um, and it was starting to grow uh, in the United States. Um, so you, you can imagine sort of what kind of projects, I mean, some of you may have been doing uh, some of this yourself, what kind of things were possible online. In uh, 1996, we, uh, we didn't have very much bandwidth, all right? So a lot of these things consisted of, you know, interesting hypertext projects and very slow uh, GIF animations. Um, uh, so we sort of dove into the world of sort of hypertext literature and we looked at a lot of sort of uh, online novels and, and uh, sort of uh, internet poetry and things like that. Uh, and w one of the first pieces we made uh, was a sound collage uh, called E2A, The Uli Suite. Um, so let me see if I can jump to that here. All right, so we sent out a call for sounds. Uh, and you can see this is an old uh, Telnet email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, circa mid-90s uh, university account. Uh, so we sent out a call for sounds, and, and we asked a, a lot of our, a lot of our friends and people in our community uh, to send us their favorite everyday sounds, and uh, so people, you know, sent us cassettes and micro cassettes, and uh, some people even did extreme things, you know, for 1996 or so, like uh, emailing us. Uh, 
you know, wave files and things like that. Um, and so we built uh, a number of collages uh, from these sounds that our friends sent us. Um, and the collages were designed around a painting system called Uli. Uh, my family, my father's family is from Nigeria and, and Uli is a painting form. Uh, it has sort of abstract lyrical lines and stippled dots. And uh, people put Uli on the body, but they also put it on buildings. So, you know, it's on the body, it's on architecture, it's all over the place, especially at, uh, uh, during festivals. Uh, so we decided that we wanted to uh, stretch out these sounds and make Uli-like patterns with audio. Um, so I'll play you a clip from this. All right, and this, um, this recording uh, is made from rain sounds. Uh, one person sent us a cassette tape with his favorite rain sounds, rain on his window seal, and um, the sound of his telephone ringing. we made about uh, a 20 minute work from these uh, Uli sounds that uh, people sent us. Um, so we were trying to find ways to, to show this work because uh, at that time there wasn't an active, cohesive sort of sound art community uh, in the US. And unlike you know a lot of countries where people are making sound art, uh, you couldn't hear a lot of sound art on the radio. And so a lot of people were finding different ways to show this work online. And so they were small sort of, you know, sound art galleries where you could go listen to, to this kind of work. Um, and so early on, uh, we started thinking about uh, using some kind of distribution model that uh, did not necessarily replicate what galleries were doing, but uh, maybe looked uh, more like advertising. Uh, and that's when we started really thinking about our work in terms of... Uh, uh, narrow casting, right? So, as you may know, narrow casting is a term that's often used in the corporate context to to um, talk about a certain kind of advertising. Um, but cable television could be considered narrow casting because um, only subscribers to certain networks um, can get the the shows. Um, digital displays and chain stores could be narrow casting if there are different different stores could have different 
information depending on whoever they think comes to that that particular site. Um, but in general, narrow casting is an approach to making and distributing information to a targeted audience. So that there are lots of different ways of thinking about targeting your audience and getting information um, to the people who are most likely to be amenable to it. So I'm gonna skip through uh, some of these projects. This is a video work, Pushing White Walls. Uh, this is a piece called Sex Machines uh, that we uh, did in 2000, and uh, we're still showing this piece on and off. This is a sound work uh, that was made uh, sort of a tribute to James Brown, uh, who passed away recently, and uh, the video artist Nam June Paik. And uh, these people were interesting to us because they were both uh, making work about sort of art and technology in the same time, both in the late 60s. All right, so a lot of people probably know James Brown's Sex Machine, uh, which he put out around 69 and 70. There are different versions that he put out. And uh, Nam June Paik, who's a video artist, made a piece called uh, Opera Sextronique with a cellist named uh, Charlotte Mormon. Uh, and this was a performance piece. Uh, so we decided to make a piece uh, using the sound of, of sex toys. Um, so each movement in the work is uh, based on one sex toy. Uh, so I'm not gonna bore you with the details of which sex toy it is, but I'll play you <laughs> a sort of two minute uh, excerpt from, uh, this is the first movement of Sex Machines.
so the next project that um, we're going to talk about today is called The Sour Thunder. Um, and it was an internet opera. And this, this project had a number of different lives, in, uh, if you want to put it that way. But um, when we performed it at Yale University, it was performed in two spaces at the same time. And so there were different, different versions of the story were being performed um, by different voices. Characters went back and forth. And um, both of the, the sites were uh, visible on the internet. Um, so people from the internet, watching from the internet, could see the different people um, in different spaces. But people in each site um, heard the narrative that was in front of them, but they could see what was happening in the, in the other place. And it was a story about migration. So the other places that we saw fragments of um, sort of were about memory of home um, in the places where we were actually experiencing the um, the, the live drama. Um, the, it was, there were also two sides to the story. So one side was a story about a science fiction kind of story about a character from a, a place where people communicated with scent, um, who traveled to a world where people uh, communicated with sound. And she found that she had different um, information, different knowledge, because she came from this scent world. Um, and then the other side was an autobiographical story about um, me traveling to the Dominican Republic and learning to speak Spanish. Um, but one of the things that happened while I was a student in the Dominican Republic is, um, you know, we have one of these student assignments to ask questions about culture. And uh, when I came back to Atlanta, I asked the same questions of students there. Um, and what we, what, you know, what we did when we were telling this story was we thought about how to respond to the interviews. And in the live uh, performance, the audience moved from one space to the next as well. And in there, as they were traveling, they heard the interview questions. Um, we later realized that we wanted to come back to interviews and to think about how um, people answering questions and asking questions um, were gonna shape our artistic project in general. So um, a lot of our projects actually involve interview questions, either um, people talking in response to uh, the questions they've been asked, or even um, the asking of questions being a part of the of the piece, uh, the live experience of the piece itself. All right. Um, so, uh, what I'll play you from the Sour Thunder, uh, uh, rather than interviews, I'll play you a couple of sections of the piece that really uh, originated as poems, and then they uh, became sound pieces uh, in their own right. Uh, uh, so the first piece here is called uh, Peanut Vendor, and it's about three minutes. And then I'll play you a piece called Trouble, which is about two minutes long. It was time for siesta. I was running on CBC. It was passing for Tiempo Dominicano. In any case, I was late. Looking for a concho, if not a bola. 
passing by Haitian street vendors who were speaking Creole. I slowed down to see if I could understand any. One brother caught me listening and turned towards me. Hablas Creole. I explained I did not speak Creole. He told me he was familiar with my language. I told him my middle name was Haitian. Mawel Lakai, he said. Es decir, nos vemos en la casa. I practiced saying it until he was satisfied with my pronunciation. And he smiled and said, Hablo cinco idiomas. Es bueno que tú hablas. Then he left with the other vendors to sell their peanut candy. So I should say, just to give you a little uh, context for what you're hearing, when we originally did this, uh, it was webcast uh, uh, over three days uh, during a live performance. Um, so each night, each performance was approximately uh, 45 minutes long. Um, and then later, uh, we released a CD from the project, and, and that sort of had its own life on radio, and it was broadcast in its entirety uh, in, in Berlin. Um, so I'll play you one more piece from that. Uh, this piece is called Trouble. It's about two minutes long. Trouble. Calls before, before dropping. Bye. A yellow mumble. In the ribs, a sweating orchard in, in the night, a pulsing funk beneath, beneath the tongue. You can smell it if your ears are. Open. Smell it. Like a dog smells earthquakes. Kissing your neck. It licks at your nose. Tongue. 
your name, whispering your fears. It's a rolling ball, wide as your mother's wish. You will know when it's coming, but it can be stopped. The next projects we did was called uh, You Heard. Well, we had a couple of projects in between this, but um, Rhizome, which is a new media art archive um, and internet art archive, um, asked us to curate an exhibition from within the works that they had archived. And um, we did a project about online sound art. So this is our our piece it was called you heard and we had a number of people who were doing a number of different kinds of things with sound online some things were more like a a theater for sound you know a place to come listen to something that had been created and some people had done things that were um more like online instruments and so we were really interested in the idea that that people making art online in a particular place could be making sound things that did really different things, sound things that made people into musicians or sound pe things that made people into audiences. Um, so, you know, one really interesting project was a project by a guy named Nicholas Klaus. Uh, Nicholas Klaus recorded everything that he heard on French radio for one day. And uh, then you could go to a site and actually tune uh, into uh, different stations uh but some part of it was not exactly intuitive so you never knew exactly what you were going to get and it ended up being a really musical work that was just based on uh you know 24 hours of radio uh, another project was by an artist named uh mark america who did this piece called phone e me or phoneme and uh mark america uh is mainly known as a writer uh, but he started making internet specific projects um in the early to mid 90s. Um, and he's based in Boulder, Boulder, Colorado. There are other people who made things that were more game-like, like, like uh, a guy named Eric Bunger. Um, and his project, um, you could actually type in words. And uh, it's, the project is called Let Them Sing For You. And if you typed in the word hello, um, the program would sing for you based on a clip from a pop song. So if you typed in hello, you might hear Lionel Richie singing hello. If you typed in girls, you might hear Cindy Lauper sing girls from Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. Um, so that was Eric Bunger's project. And there are other people uh, who contributed things like um, uh, Paul Miller, who's DJ Spooky, uh, made a, a musical piece uh, based on Marcel Duchamp's art. and. Um, 
Let's see, who else do we have? Connor O'Boyle, who had a piece called Loop Tracks, which is sort of a, a virtual instrument. Um, so that, that was, uh, you heard, and that's a permanent installation, so that's still up at Rhizome. Um, next project that we did was a piece called uh, The Armory Opera. Let me click through these very large slides here. The Army Opera um, was done at the Army Art Show, which is uh, more traditionally visual art and um, mostly paintings. And so different galleries have places where they are showing their paintings. Um, but Franklin Furnace, which is a performance art organization, also had a booth, but they, don't, they, they weren't going to have uh, something to hang up on their walls. So they commissioned performance artists to do a piece in the Armory Art Fair for every day that they that they were going on. So we were one of those artists, or two of those artists, uh, one of those days. And we did a piece that um, combined uh, a real-time transmission of ambient sound from the space and a poetic text that we did collaboratively with people who were visiting the art fair. Um, so uh, there are a number of questions that Mindy uh, went around asking uh, the people at the fair. Um, and uh, in between the questions, uh, they, they read together parts uh, from, from two stories. So in a lot of our projects, we're remixing sort of pre-existing stories. Um, and uh, the, the two stories that we work with for this project were uh, the story of Br'er Rabbit. You guys know Br'er Rabbit, kind of uh, southern folktale, and um, uh, Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Um, do you want to read some of the questions that you asked? Yeah, so, um, so first what would happen is the person we ran into would, um, would read a, a reversion uh, version of the text from the Br'er Rabbit story. Um, and then, no, no, I would read that. Then they would read a line from The Art of War. And we took out parts of The Art of War that were about art. So things like, oh, divine art of subtlety and secrecy, such as the art of maneuvering. This is the art of studying moods. Those were the things that the person who was visiting would read. Um, and then the questions, after we did that together, I'd ask them a question. And the questions would be, why did you come to the Army Art Show? Um, do you have a map? How are you finding your way around? How, do you, how would you describe the tenor or mood of the fair? How do you know the right time to purchase a work of art? Have you ever saved up to purchase a work of art? Did you come ready to buy something if you liked it? Do you think some galleries have better booths than others? Have you ever bought a work of art that someone else was about to buy? And did you get what you came for today? And these questions came out of the stories. So, you know, we'd put the parts of the story together and then think about how we could ask a question about the art fair um, based on those things. Um, and so we realized after doing a couple of projects where interviews took um, some role that we, that we liked this kind of interaction with people. Uh, we liked the asking of questions that seemed to be disjunctive um, because the way that people think on their feet is like a musical response. Uh, it's like a musical improvisation. Um, and so oh, we'll, we'll play you some of that, of that piece.
to think about interviewing when we did the next project, which is called Four Electric Ghosts. Um, it's another project with a woven narrative. Um, and one of the stories is a, a novel by uh, Amos Tutola, who's a Nigerian writer, um, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which was published in 1954. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a story about a, a young boy who um, is ex escaping a war that has come to his village, and he runs into a forest. And it turns out that this is the Bush of Ghosts, and only ghosts are supposed to be there. And um, so he's trapped in this bush for 24 years, <laughs> going from village to village. And all the different ghosts have different rules and different ways of treating uh, mortals who are not supposed to be there. Um, and he eats their food, and he's not supposed to eat their food. All these things happen. The other story is the backstory for Pac-Man, um, which has a lot in common with my life in the Bush of Ghosts, strangely. Um, and not only is there this mortal who's trapped in this um, this world for ghosts, but um, Toru Iwatani, who's the designer of Pac-Man, has all these ideas about what kind of being Pac-Man is, and he's he eats everything in sight. He would even eat a policeman's gun, he said, um, because he isn't innocent. He doesn't know better than to eat everything, and this is exactly what um, Tutola says about the boy who's in My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. He doesn't, he goes into the Bush of Ghosts because he's too young to know good from bad. Um, so we thought about what it would be like to tell these stories from the perspective of the ghosts. Okay, so we've got this human who, yeah, might be killed by these ghosts at any time. But what about the ghosts who are being invaded by an innocent? You know, um, how might they see these things? So we placed um, the kind of world of Pac-Man, which we call Electric Town, in the Bush of Ghosts. Um, and tell a story from the perspective of, of the ghost. Um, so in order to tell the story, we, we thought we needed to learn more about ghosts. Um, so we talked to a bunch of people who we thought might know about ghosts. So we talked to philosophers uh, who think about the spirit. We talked to uh, anthropologists who work on how people think about ghosts in different cultures. Um, we talked to people who worked in haunted places. We talked to one chef who, who worked uh, in a place that he said was haunted. Um, and so we worked with a, a number of students at Princeton University on this project, and so they went around interviewing people in their community about ghosts, people who had seen ghosts or claimed to be experts on things that related to ghosts. Um, so we told our story against these interviews about with uh, with people about their ideas about ghosts. Um, so we'll play you a little bit of this project. And our students played our ghosts, so you'll see one. person wandered into Electric Town. He was hungry and he ate what he saw. Bouncing fruit, electric crumbs, and blinking lights. He was too young to know the meaning of good and bad, but he knew not to tangle with ghosts. My conception of a ghost has to do with the complex relation between the present and the past. It has to do with memory. It has to do with recollection and recuperation. And therefore, it's not just a matter of a ghost that haunts us, 
but it's a matter of understanding ourselves as descendants of persons who were once present who are no longer here and as we wrestle with their loss we remain connected with them by means of how we remember them. In the brightest sectors of Electric Town, it is often said, if you must dream as humans dream, dream of sleeping. There was a house on a hill, three brothers, one was a little slow, and three of them moved with the quickness. The brothers in the little town Three of them knew their place But one was too big for his project They were electrical And they were very bright And they were very bright They knew your next move They knew your next They knew your type They knew your type Where you were going So this piece, I mean, what you're seeing is a video clip from the live performance, but we sort of created the piece to be streamed as, as an audio work. Um, so uh, th this live performance is streamed, and you can listen to the project from our website. And um, it's sort of weird to, to see a live performance of a thing that we kind of envisioned as a radio piece, <laughs> uh, but because we were doing it live, we thought, uh, and there was an audience there, we thought we should have th this, this video element. Um, and so now this is a piece that we're reworking and hoping that it can have a sort of fuller life as, as, a, as a radio piece specifically. Um, so we're going to uh, jump ahead to the last uh, couple of projects here. Um, uh, this project uh, is called Crosstalk. And uh, Crosstalk is a new CD compilation that we're working on uh, with a number of artists. And all these artists uh, work with what some people might call text sound composition or, or sound poetry. Um, so it's a collection of different kinds of talking music. Um, and, and we came from sort of different areas. Mindy comes from literature and I came from working in hip hop for many years. And, and so we were interested in uh, what kind of music people are making around talking. And so we collected a number of works by sort of academic composers and people working in experimental hip hop and people making soundscapes, um, sound poets, and more traditional composers and DJs um, for this one um, CD. And this, this project will be coming out in, in February. Um, and so we'll play you 
um, one track here from a person named Daniel Bernard Romain. And, and Daniel often writes for orchestras, uh, but he's doing a new piece um, that's built around interviews he did with people about loss, people who've experienced great loss. And what I'm playing you is essentially the overture from this new project that he's working on. And this piece is called Blimp Sky, and it's about uh, five minutes long. Ambitious and exhausted. <laughs> My earliest day, I was three years old, and we were looking at some blimps in the sky. They were blimps. C A L Blimps in the sky.
that's God's will. My earliest day was three years old. And so I just think that. All right. So that was Daniel Bernard Romain's Blimp Sky. Uh, I think we should also mention that uh, Pamela Z, who performed last night, has a piece on the CD. Um, it's a great piece that she, the first piece that she performed last night, declaratives in the first person. Uh, so we're really happy to have Pamela's work on the project. Um, I think uh, now we'll talk about a very recent piece. Uh, this is Big House Disclosure, uh, which we uh, worked on earlier this year uh, with Northwestern University. Um, and we created this piece for uh, a conference that Northwestern was organizing around the, the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the British slave trade. Um, um, okay, so the the conference came out of the art history, the art and art history department, and they were thinking about slavery and the visual imagination. Um, and so, you know, we do audio things. So we thought it was going to be interesting to to try to ask questions about what people envision when they envision uh, slavery. We're also interested in what 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 slavery meant in Chicago. Um, we're from the South, and we had no idea really what it meant in the Midwest. But as we started doing research, we found out that there was a slavery era disclosure ordinance, which uh, actually existed in a number of different cities, but started in Chicago. And it's an ordinance that requires corporations that are doing business with the city of Chicago to um, disclose whether they profited from slavery or whether they descended from another company that profited from slavery. Um, and if they don't disclose or if they lie, then they lose their contract with the city of Chicago. Uh, and some have lied, that's why I'm saying it. Um, but it's, it, it was an interesting moment that we thought because the legislation passed in 2002 when we did the research in 2006, was that when things started with yeah. us? Um, it was still in the, on the courts, it was still being argued, but we hadn't heard anything about it and we wondered what people here thought. Um, so we, we collaborated with students in two classes that were being taught around the conference um, who asked questions of people in the Chicago area, and the questions were, "How did you or your how did you or your family come to the United States? What do you know about house music? Um, do you believe that slavery has an impact on present day life in the United States? If so, how? Who's responsible for the impact that slavery has? 
Can you describe a Southern plantation mansion? What does one look like? What do you know about Sh Chicago's slavery era disclosure ordinance? Do you think this ordinance is a good idea? What do you think the companies that profited from slavery should do to make amends? And have you benefited from slavery? And if so, how? And if so, how? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the students, <clears throat> excuse me, the students conducted uh, these interviews as video interviews, uh, but we knew what we wanted to use was, was the audio. We thought, well, we'll take the video because we don't know where the project's going to end up and maybe we might want to use the images in some way, but we really thought of this as an audio project. Um, and we wanted to be able to listen to these voices without, uh, without our own sort of uh, preconceived ideas about what a person who looks like this might have to say about this ordinance. Right? Um, so 40 students conducted uh, five interviews each. So we wanted 200 interviews, and we wanted the interviews to play for 200 hours, and we wanted them to be uh, interwoven into a house song. Um, so uh, in order to do this, um, we built a project website, um, and, and we decided that this piece would stream uh, over you know, eight plus days. Um, the students also made a number of mini performances based on text scores and graphic scores that we gave them. Uh, so the text scores are usually performed by one to four performers. Mm -hmm. And the graphic scores are performed by uh, musicians at the university. Uh, so this is an example of the graphic scores. Um, and the graphic scores are based on a kind of uh, uh, Nigerian writing that is used by secret societies uh, called Insabidi. Uh, but we also sort of incorporated some architectural symbols uh, in order to get at this idea of, of the big house in multiple ways. And these things were interpreted by musicians. At the site, uh, you could see clips of the video interviews that were conducted, uh, as, well, as well as transcripts from those interviews. Uh, you could download a PDF of the city's slavery era disclosure ordinance. Uh, and, and you could also uh, click on links that would take you to uh, documents about the corporation's uh, sort of apology letters. Yeah, because if you, you can search for them. For example, if you go to the bank websites, you can search for slavery and find all these things, but there are no links you know, to the page itself, so you're not going to click through and find these documents. Um, and we thought, how many times do you go to your bank website as you're doing your online banking? Oh, let me see what they have to say about slavery. Like, never. Um, but there's a lot to say on Wachovia's website if you do that. And so we, we made some of that um, available there. So many companies like Wachovia and Aetna and Lehman Brothers and J.P. Morgan Chase, all, all of these. Bank of America. Bank of America. Uh, many people... Uh, sort of ended up uh, making sort of formal apologies, but these things, of course, were just buried in, in the uh, corporate websites. Um, so what, what we'll play you, uh, we'll play you a couple of the raw interviews, and then we'll play you an example of how these things were incorporated with the house music. So these interviews were, were unedited. Okay. How do your you or your family get to this country? Uh, my family is actually, I believe, third generation. Uh, combination Irish, Russian, and uh, German ancestry. Oh, I believe my uh, I know 
Is this like actual audio, like videotape? Should I stare into the screen? Oh, my mother's father uh, was Irish, and I believe he immigrated about four generations ago. That I'm not sure of. Uh, my dad's father was actually, uh, he, he was Jewish, and he was uh, in Germany during the time uh, World War II. It was actually right before, and he actually immigrated when things started to get really bad there. So that was about mm, 15 years before, or about 10 years before Hitler took power. So that's when the Nazi movement started gaining force. Um, that's pretty much it for that. What do you know about house music? House music? What is house music? <laughs> oh, uh, I remember hearing a couple things with my sisters. I think they liked it, but it's <laughs> I pretty much listen to pop rock, classical, sometimes opera. So uh, rap, house music, not so much. Um, do you believe that slavery has had an impact on present-day life in the United States? Uh, how is it? I don't know if it's even possible to say no to that question. I mean, considering that uh, slavery in all of its forms from Asia, China, all the way up to Africa, I mean, so many countries forced importation of so many different cultures that led to huge impact, both economical and political on the country. I can't say how it has not had a dramatic effect. And I think for the most part, although the circumstances were extremely negative on how that happened, it, I think the country's stronger for it in the end for having so many diverse cultures. Um, if so, oh, if not, when did the effects of the slavery end? Okay, so when we're talking about effects, we talk about negative, positive effects, or we're just talking about effects in general, because I don't think the effects have—I don't think they've ended yet. Uh, we still have forms of segregation, either socially or uh, internally with individuals. I mean, as you get to different parts of the country, it's a large country, and a lot of people have uh, stereotypical views associated with their own region. And I think it's going to probably be, realistically, another 50 to 75 years before that changes. Who is responsible for the impact that slavery has? Who is responsible for the impact? Uh, hmm, I don't think you can really nail that one down. Uh, I think principally slavery was just a really bad economic idea at the times when uh, individuals associated themselves as being separate from other human beings. and. Uh, that cultural view obviously doesn't really exist in its totality anymore, but I don't believe it. It's like if the blame could be held back then. I don't even think that's realistic. So I'm going to play you uh, one more clip of a, a raw, unedited interview with another student. And, and these students, by the way, were mostly art students, so many of them had never conducted an interview before. Uh, some were art historians, some were practicing artists. How did you or your family get to this country? Um, I'm an international student, so I guess I flew over <laughs> just when I came to school. Okay. Um, so what do you know about house music? House music? Um, I, the only thing I know is that it originated from Chicago, but if you were to play me something that was house, I wouldn't be able to tell. Um, do you believe that slavery has had an impact on present-day life in the United States? If so, how and if 
not, when did the effects of slavery end? It's deep. Um, so, do I believe if slavery has an effect on present-day society in America? Yeah, in America, yes. I think it does because um, it definitely affect, um, affects the African-American people um, in the sense that they, um, not that they experienced it personally like this generation, but um, I guess they come from a history of that. And so it's kind of, I'm not making any sense. It's okay. <laughs> I don't know. I think it, um, like, psychologically and indirectly it does, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, and who is responsible for the impact that slavery has? Who is responsible? Who is responsible for the impact? Hmm. White people? Okay. And can you describe a southern plantation mansion and what does one look like? Oh, I've never seen a plantation. So uh, now I'll play you a bit of how these things got uh, used with the house song. And, and then I'll talk a bit about how that actually worked technically. So uh, that's an excerpt of how, how the piece sounded in the installation. And the way the installation worked is that uh, it was a four-channel installation in Northwestern's Art History Building. Uh, so essentially, two channels were, were the music, and then you had uh, three interviews panned left and right uh, coming from another two channels. And so three interviews would play at a time, and they were offset by 10 seconds. Uh, and so... Uh, we created a piece of software that would choose from a huge bank of the interviews, and the interviews were, were unedited. Um, so 
Uh, you heard everything that the students uh, captured. The only thing that we did was we compressed them a bit and normalized them. Um, and, and so um, every, every 10 minutes, a new group of three interviews would be chosen and they'd be offset by three seconds. And the software also triggered small changes in the music. So this whole, this whole soundscape sort of morphed over the eight days that the piece played. Um, and, and this is how it was actually installed in the art history building itself. Um, so you could hear it in the physical space and you could listen to it online over that week. And over the course of that 10 minutes, um, some of the same answers would be repeated. So if you miss part of it, you could wait for it to come back again. Um, and a couple of minutes we have left. I just want to talk very quickly about a new project that we're working on. Uh, this is called Sounding the Cipher. And uh, we're doing this with the University of Southern California. Uh, do you folks remember the Susan Smith case from like 1994 or so? 92, I think. 92. Yeah. Uh, so, so Susan Smith was this woman in, in Union, South Carolina, a white woman who, who killed her children, but uh, she claimed that she was carjacked by, by a black man. And, and this is the sort of description she gave to the police sketch artist. Uh, so for a few days, uh, police all around South Carolina and certainly in other parts of the country were looking for this person. Uh, but soon after she gave this visual description, uh, the police knew that something was a little funny about her story, right? They looked at this person and said, okay, um, this doesn't quite uh, look like a real person. Uh, um, so we were, we were always really interested in this case, uh, but a few years ago, a poet named Cornelius Eady wrote a book about it uh, where he tried to uh, imagine the thoughts of this imaginary person. Uh, so Mr. Zero is what he calls this guy, and he's a character in, in Edie's book, and Susan Smith is also a character in the book. Um, we were fascinated because so much of what was written about this case was the visual description of this imaginary person. Um, because we're sort of sound people, we were drawn to the sonic descriptions of the person. So we're doing an online piece with the University of Southern California um, uh, to try to sort of recreate this person sonically. Um, and so the idea is that uh, we've made sort of a number of field recordings in Union, South Carolina, and based on sonic descriptions of this person taken from the book, uh, you'll be able to sort of reconstruct the, the body of this imaginary person. Um, so that's the piece that we're working on now. In addition to sort of, now we're going back and making a CD version of this Big House Disclosure project that we just showed you. Okay. Yeah. All right, so, so we'll stop Stop there, there yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the, the piece that you showed us, uh, the 200 hour piece, uh -huh. um, sometimes when in, in straight journals and public radio, uh -huh. we work with an editor. Uh -huh. And sometimes we're very protective of our work. And we say, well, in a way, I'm an artist, so I don't see why you should be touching this. This is beautiful the way it is. So when you're doing art, do you work with an editor? And if so, how do you craft it and stay true to the content? Yeah, we don't uh, work with an editor, but when someone commissions a project, right, their role is often like that of an editor. Yeah. Um, that sounds worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it can. It, it can be. It yeah. Can, it can be a bit rougher. Um, I really 
appreciated the people who you know who commissioned this project though i mean i think that the collaboration yes, we appreciate all commissions right <laughs> yes we appreciate all no but i mean they were really in the spirit of the project you know huey copeland and krista thompson um they you know their students they directed their students in the process and you know huey you know was always sending me people like you know we'd send an email at three o'clock in the morning this person can't um figure out how to burn this sheet you know because <laughs> that we had these text scores that they had to do and so we would talk about how you know how to stay true to the letter of the text score and get it done you know um but yeah so the people who are, are would-be editors in this project actually ended up being you know extremely supportive because it took so much work and so much organization uh to you know get uh, 40 plus students to sort of stay focused over a couple of months uh, on a project of this scale. So uh, yeah, sometimes that sort of relationship with the uh, people commissioning the projects can uh, get a bit tricky, especially when you're doing it long distance, because we were working mm -hmm. in New York and New Jersey at the time when uh, a lot of this work was being done. So a lot of these conversations happen online and over cell phones. Um, but so if there was something like editing, I would say it would be about things that weren't possible for people to do, you know? So it was like, wh what's the best next, what's the second best thing, <laughs> you know? Um. When you guys come up with ideas that are larger than the two of you can do, whether it's technically speaking or, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I'm assuming here, have you guys, with all the pieces you've done so far, has it just been the two of you or have you brought in outside help as far as like getting them online or that thing you just showed with the, the random sampling of the museum, is that some piece of software that you guys wrote? I'm curious to know like how you find the right collaborators to work in this like really experimental sphere. Um. We've just been really lucky when we're looking for collaborators. And sometimes we just like go back to the same people <laughs> because we know they can do it. Um, yeah, and um, with that piece, like the software for that piece, um, like I've played around with it a bit, but the the what we needed to do for this was a bit steeper than what I could program alone, so I worked with another programmer. Um, and so a good part about being in the New York area is that there are lots of all kinds of programmers and actually, the project came out of Chicago, but the person who did some of the web design was based in New York, but we were talking to her through folks in Chicago. So we'd send people a message here, and then they'd relay it back to this person who was actually down the street from us. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you talk about why you made the decision to set the big house interviews to house music? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we were kind of interested in the musical history of Chicago. Um, but also uh, that musical history's intersection with slavery and migrant labor. Uh, so we're thinking about this sort of uh, migrant black workforce that came to Chicago and, and all the cultural products that came out of that transition. Um, um, let's see, what else can we say about? Well, we were also imagining the, the corporations that profited from slavery as, um, as the, what the big house looked like in Chicago, you know? And, um, and so we were sort of making the play on house, house music, big house. Um, and so that was another part of it. So it's this music that happens in an industrial space in Chicago uh, that people often don't associate with slavery. Like, you know, coming from the South, we have a different sense of what a sort of uh, 
slavery era industrial space looks like and that's usually this old style 19th century plantation mansion uh but in chicago maybe the places that might be uh most related to slavery in that former slave population might be the warehouses where this music was born um so so we're kind of interested in updating this idea of slavery and reimagining the big house around a new kind of corporate space mm-hmm. yeah. um I have two questions. The first, I, uh, I'm just really curious what people's re- reaction was to the ordinance. Um, and then uh, I was also hoping you could talk a little bit about the actual process of creating the sex machine piece. Like what, what kind of processing did you use? How did you record it? And what, what went into that? Um, so about the ordinance itself, um, we were surprised that very few people knew about it. Um, I mean, obviously, I mean, it was shocking to us um, because we made other projects about slavery and we thought, wouldn't something like this make national news? Wouldn't everybody know about it? And, and we were very shocked that people didn't know about it locally. Um, and uh, we got a wide range of responses. Uh, some people thought, you know, what an absolutely ridiculous idea. Why should we be worried about this thing now when we have so many you know, more pressing things to be worried about? Some people thought it was a great idea. Um, and surprisingly, a large number, surprising to, to us, a large number of students thought, well, it's not the worst idea in the world, but I'm really concerned about the corporations. <laughs> uh, and that's just not an attitude that we associate with, the, that I associate with college students, right? I'm like, wow, these are the young radicals. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily people who thought that nothing should be done about the effects of slavery. That was that was really interesting, you know, that it was really that maybe something should be done about slavery, but the corporations shouldn't have to tell us anything. Um, that was an interesting and common idea. Yeah, I think only today would you get a response like that from, from college students. Um, oh, and oh, how did we make the sex machines piece? Um, so, let's see, what can I tell you? <laughs> well, there are these sex toys. Uh, <laughs> so all all of the recordings were made with an AKG 414 microphone. Um, they all started out as kind of monophonic recordings. Um, they were recorded to, I think when we did this, they recorded multiple tracks to an old Alesis ADAT. Do you guys know those things? Like multi-track recorders, like eight-track digital recorders. And so they were multi-tracked on that thing, and then they were put into... Uh, sound edit 16. You, do you remember that? <laughs> uh, and so then a lot of pitch shifting was done in that, and a lot of the processing was done in a Yamaha Pro Mix 01V. Uh, it's a digital mixer with the internal processes in that. So not a lot of sort of software editing of this stuff. A lot of it was done in the mixer uh, and just by multi tracking on the ADAT. Since you guys work, um, you've worked for so long with the internet, I'm wondering, like, beyond just, like, technical challenges, how, like, its explosion has changed what you're doing and how you think it Um, there's no telling how it might change. I mean, I think one way that it's changed, I didn't expect it, is that it's made me less interested in some areas. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the sort of YouTube of the internet makes it less interesting to see video art online, I think. Um, uh, and I don't know if that means we won't do more with video, but it's just, it has changed sort of the nature of what what can be, where you can experiment and, you know, 
what is already there. Um, it's also changed in that over the years, from when we started to now, there's been more gallery interest in, in internet art. But, but the weird thing about it is that galleries, uh, gallery people don't seem to want you to do what you do on the internet, which is you play with whatever project is there, and then you check your email, and then you know, like they really don't want you to surf off of the project, which is just kind of not how people tend to interact with internet art. So um, that has been an interesting conversation that we tend to have with gallery people now that internet art is in the gallery, and I still don't think we've had people who were willing to have like a station where people could do all of that. I don't know. I mean, you know, I do want. Pe I don't want people to be just using the station to check their email either. But I, I do think that you know, when ideally, people would be able to to have the interaction that um, is is comfortable, you know, and not odd. Which is like it is odd to be like when you have to have a project that pops up every ten seconds, no matter what you do, just to make sure that it's still there. Um, uh, I would say the other way that things have changed very recently is that, um, uh, you know, I mean, I think everybody's seen this, that folks are no longer interested in sort of flashy, and I don't mean to disparage the software flash, but people are no longer interested in really flashy pages, right? Uh, this whole Web 2.0 thing, everybody's interested in sort of simpler pages, which we've always made because of our own technical limitations. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're finally glad that, that the trends have caught up to us. Yes. Um, yeah, I actually have kind of a, a question about inter uh, using the internet to distribute as well. So um, you're not concerned that people who access your art over the internet, it's, it's, it, it doesn't have kind of like, you know, a, like a, a holistic experience like you would see like art like in a gallery or like listening to a record, but you, you are okay with the fact that like people like are on your page for a second and check their email and are like, I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a different way to experience things. I mean, I mean, I think, uh, you know, you could compare it to making work for, for television. Uh, you know, I'd much rather people experience the work while they're checking their email rather than have it sort of interrupted by some commercial. Um, um, because people are largely doing what they choose to do online. Uh, and it's not being uh, shaped by so many outside forces. Um, and we really make our work with, with, with that in mind. I mean, part of the idea with this Big House Disclosure Project is that you didn't have to, you know, sit through a one-hour piece. It was an ongoing piece, and so you could listen to one minute of it and come back a couple of days later, and it would still be there, and you could drop in for another 30 seconds or so. Um, or for longer. People did sit dropping for longer but no one thought I'm missing the piece because I haven't sat there for an hour no you're not going to hear the 200 hours <laughs> you know what I mean so you're gonna dip in and you're gonna get what's there um, and I think that was one of the approaches that I that I'm I feel most successful because people don't people do what they do online they dip in but they don't feel like oh I'm not, I didn't see it, you know, I didn't hear it, because it's always there. And I, I have a couple of friends who said, oh yeah, I came back every day to hear a little bit of it and to dance in my office, and you know, and I, and I liked that about it. I, I'll also say for us that I think working online is this interesting space between making public work and making private work. Um, so unlike making a recording that people take home and they listen to in their headphones, it's something that you could 
you could possibly experience with a large number of people and also have your sort of private experience of it also at the same time. So that's another great thing for us, at least, about working online. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm hoping you could actually talk more about the YouTubization <laughs> of the internet and uh, have you ever posted your work on YouTube and or does that idea feel weird? No, I, it's not that I wouldn't. It's just that it wouldn't, for me, be like internet art. It would just it would be a documentation of something on YouTube. You know, uh, I don't. I'm not anti-YouTube. It's just it changes sort of. The, it changes the the video element of web pages to me now that we're in this time when so many people have video online. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think some people have done interesting work with it. And, you know, I, I really enjoy seeing a lot of video footage that, you know, we wouldn't have access to otherwise. But I don't think, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think we figured out a way to use it in a compelling way yet, you know, but I think some people have. And that's what, what do you think is the missing Piece. For for us, I don't know if I knew I'd do it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think some some way you have to make something that can really make uh, that can really marry the content well with, with that format. And and I think that's very hard to do because what people do when they're creating something like YouTube or MySpace is that is that they work very hard to homogenize it, right? So that all the content as diverse as it is, is still in some way YouTube content, right? It still has to fit into that frame. And I think it's hard to make compelling art that fits into such a tight frame as sort of MySpace or YouTube. But I think a lot of people are trying, and so we're kind of watching the Is it a time thing as well? Like, I mean, you guys clearly seem to go more for much long form stuff. Uh, well, we've made a lot of little short things too. Um, so. I mean, yeah. we, we've got these big extremes between the sort of 200-hour things and the two-minute things or the 30-second things. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily time, but it's really figuring out. Um, I think when working online, you don't, you don't want to push against the technologies too much. In some way, you sort of have to go with what they do, right? Um, uh, so, you know, what does YouTube do that we want to do? Well, I don't know what that is yet. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. How do you cultivate and track your audience? And has tracking your audience, if you do do that, has that changed your work at all in terms of like the globalization of the internet? That's a good question. I don't think we track our audience, uh, although we do sometimes have um, responses from audience. And depending on the project, I mean, we did, we did a project we didn't discuss here. We've done a couple of projects that involve uh, forms. Um, and so we sometimes get responses to the project that are part of the project you know in the in the internet forms um so we we find out who's 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 participating in that way but that even that is very odd because we're asking people to imagine things in their forms and so who knows who they are you know but, but we do you know track the hits and sometimes oh, where people hits. are coming from yeah. so that lets us know uh usually when we do a project we do sort of mass emailing and we can kind of tell where people are coming from in general and what times people are coming and if people are responding to a press release or if, the, if they're coming you know because of some other reason so we have very sort of general information about what kind of things work and what kind of things don't work mm -hmm. uh, but I think what's worked best for us is really uh, really partnering uh, with the right institution for each project 
Um, so, I mean, that's something that we sort of figured out kind of early on that, you know, if you wanted to, you know, do a sound-specific project, you really had to, you know, go with people who knew that world best and not necessarily with uh, a more prestigious visual art institution that didn't have a great sound mailing list at all, right? Um, and, um, you know, finding the right journalists who are, who are going to write about the project because they're interested in whatever kind of quirky thing this particular project is doing. So those, those kind of things have been really helpful for us. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Thank you.